Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America. And welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we are in the first full day of the presidency of Joe Biden, and it is becoming apparent exactly uh, what his policy agenda is. Lots of executive orders, everything from COVID to immigration, a uh, 100-day reprieve and de deportations, discussions of um, uh, reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and cheap gas. A lot of people are worried about the price of gas going up, something we don't need with all the other crises. Uh, at least a lot of people think we don't need it without all the crises that are going on in uh, America already. Jobless numbers are up, 900,000. Still a big number. We're down a little bit from last week, but still at a, pretty close to the historical highs of the uh, pandemic and many, many other things going on. But first, I want to do something a little different today. I want to open with a very solemn moment because uh, this week, one of our fans of this show, a true American hero, someone who has been on the front lines of the COVID crisis in Detroit, Michigan, Dr. Stephen Schleyback passed away at the age of 62 this week. Yes, he contracted COVID while treating patients. He's been in the hospital treating COVID patients from the very first days of the pandemic. I'm told that he was a regular listener of the show, a regular reader of uh, justthenews.com. He's a family member of my great colleague, uh, Jacqueline Lane, who works every day, actually helps book this show among many other important things that Jacqueline does. Her family is close to uh, Dr. Schleyback. And so today, when you have a moment, if you believe in prayer, if you believe in God, please say a prayer for Dr. Schleybach's family. Dr. Stephen Schleybach, dead at age 62, uh, a true casualty of the war against this pandemic. Uh, he's worked very hard, and um, it is a big loss. He's left a gaping hole in the lives of his wife, Kim, who, by the way, is also a doctor treating people on the front lines. His son, James, his daughter, Emily, they all have a hole in their life today. Um, we all have lost an American hero, somebody who risked his life, risked his well-being to make others well in one of the most health outbreaks we've ever had in our history. So today, not only does Detroit, Michigan grieve, but the entire John Solomon Reports nation, the Just the News nation, we honor you, Dr. Schleyback. Your sacrifice will not be forgotten. We embrace your family with love and thought, good thoughts and prayer. And we hope that the hole you've left behind in this world will be filled by other heroes while you look down upon us from up above. 
where I'm sure our good Lord is uh, rewarding you for a life well-lived and a heroism contribution uh, of great sacrifice. We're going to miss you, sir. God bless you, Dr. Slayback. All right, folks, we're going to take a break, go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, news of the day, and then a very special guest, the executive director of the 1776 Commission, Matthew Spaulding, joins us. This is a commission that Joe Biden erased. Yes, he erased it yesterday by executive order. Joe Biden wanted to cancel the findings, the work of a commission that actually advocated patriotic education. I wonder what that's, what's wrong with that? What do you think is wrong with that? Well, think about that during the commercial break. We'll be right back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break and so much to share with you today. Um, First off, uh, some headlines from just the news that I think are worth um, noting, uh, pointing out. I did this morning deliver uh, a copy of that document to you all, the just the news world. Uh, The document shows that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, and her campaign, the FBI believe were being targeted for undue foreign influence at the start of the 2016 campaign. FBI agents wanted to begin uh, a FISA warrant to focus on a foreign power. The the name of the country is not named, but it's clear what their intent was to corruptly influence Hillary Clinton's campaign through money donations. Um, There's even a suggestion that they were going to use their foreign aid money to put the money into the system to influence Hillary Clinton. The FBI, the lead agents, wanted a FISA warrant. You know what that is. We talked about it a lot with Carter Page. And guess what? They didn't get it. It was delayed. It was stonewalled. It was slow walked. It did not happen. And then a funny thing happened. The FBI leadership decided they had a better idea. Don't do a FISA. Let's go tell Mrs. Clinton uh, and give her a defensive briefing and uh, let her know what's wrong. We don't need to investigate. We'll just warn her, warn her, ward her off from whatever this ill intent nation was intending and we'll close it down. Sound different than the way they treated Donald Trump? You bet you did. It sure is. You know why? Donald Trump actually was the target of a FISA for a whole year on evidence that turned out to be bogus. The FISA was incredibly flawed. And guess what? Donald Trump never got a defensive briefing, even though the FBI worried his campaign could be infiltrated by Russian influence, as we know it wasn't. But what a difference. Two candidates, two identical circumstances, two very different treatments. This is why so many in America today fear we're living in an era of two systems of justice one for the elitists one for everybody else think about that read the story the documents are there you'll see the fbi's complaints there was one senior fbi agent that actually jumped his chain of command and wrote an email directly to then director james comey saying i know i'm probably overstepping my bounds but i'm really concerned we don't have a vice on this what's going on why is the seventh floor comey's floor holding this up at the FBI, and James Comey wrote back pleading ignorance. I don't know anything about this, but I'll try to get smart about it. 
Well, getting smart apparently involved giving Hillary Clinton a defensive briefing, not following the same path that the um, FBI did with a one-year FISA against Donald Trump targeting his campaign. All the documents there for you to read, the FBI's messages, the email back and forth from Comey and that agent, the defensive briefing. I actually have a copy of the debriefing that Mrs. Clinton's lawyers, David Kendall, uh, and a partner at his firm, got in October 2015. What a difference. Two different approaches to the same problem with two different candidates. Hmm. The Republican candidate seemed to get a very much more hostile treatment, didn't he? Well, check that out. Make up your own mind. I don't even want to make up your mind for you. I just give you the facts. You decide. All right. Another fun story. Uh, Donald Trump has left Washington. His presidency has ended, but already there is whispers about what he will do next. And so our great colleague, um, Carrie Sheffield, today on her morning television show, which you can watch on Real America's Voice. It's called Just the News AM. It's channel 219 on Dish Network, channel 240 on the Pluto uh, online television network. She had Jason Miller, uh, President Trump's spokesman, former President Trump's spokesman. And he said that the first thing that President Trump is likely to focus on in his post-presidency getting election reform at the state level with the legislatures and the places where all those rule changes occurred in the 2020 election that opened up the spigot for absentee ballots and mail-in balloting and mobile ballot boxes and Mark Zuckerberg's money. President Trump is going to work with the legislatures to turn that around, to restore the election system back to the way it used to be, pre-pandemic, pre-Mark Zuckerberg intervention. That's some news. And then separately, we're hearing rumors. Actually, we have confirmed it from our own reporting that President Trump is considering, at least, building his own political party. Yes, a third political party. It's been talked about before. It was tried once before with Ross Perot. Ross Perot never had 75 million followers. Uh, Donald Trump does. Donald Trump could triangulate Washington, Republicans, Democrats, and what is now being rumored to be a patriot party. Now, he doesn't have to go that route as well. I'm talking to several uh, people close to the president who said he's also considering just creating a super PAC called the Patriot Party Super PAC that eventually could evolve into a party if the Republican Party doesn't reform itself or change or adhere to the principles of the Trump doctrine. But uh, hey, that's some pretty big news, isn't it? Something you want to keep an eye on. Uh, if you want to read that great story, Joe Curl at justthenews.com has the very latest. Go to the homepage. You'll be up to speed on it in a few minutes and uh, be able to tell your friends all about it. Finally, a lot of erasing of the Trump agenda has gone on. Joe Biden is putting his stamp on government from big things to little things, from climate change to the COVID pandemic to many, many other things, even symbolic things like no longer being allowed to use the name. Operation Warp Speed. By the way, one of the great successes of the Trump campaign, right? In nine months, they developed the vaccine, one of the fastest in American history by a mile. And yet, uh, we're not going to be able to even call it that. That's how much Joe Biden, after calling for unity, took his time yesterday to erase the Trump legacy, big and small. Um, now, while that was going on, some of the Biden cabinet candidates were embracing some of the Trump things. There was some testimony from Tony Blinken and from Avril Haines. Avril Haines is going to be the DNI. Um, Tony Blinken is going to be the Secretary of State. They were uh, saying that Donald Trump got some of his foreign policy right. They were embracing elements of that. Imagine that. Isn't that amazing? 
Well, uh, go check that out at justthenews.com as well. A lot of things. So while, while the Biden administration is using its executive fiat to erase the Trump legacy, some of his own cabinet secretaries were embracing the successes of the Trump economy, the Trump foreign policy. What an interesting double message. If you're scratching your head wondering, how do I make sense of this? Well, I don't know. I'm in Washington. I can't make sense of it. But I'll at least tell you the news and you can make up your own mind. All right, folks, we're going to go to another commercial break. When we come back, uh, we will wrap up uh, with a great interview with Matthew Spaulding. He's a Hillsdale College academic and the executive director of the 1776 Commission created by Donald Trump to create a patriotic education agenda to encourage it. And um, with one stroke of his pen, Joe Biden stamped out the patriotic education movement, at least the commission's work. Uh, We'll be here to talk to him about that and what the commission achieved and what's next for the movement for those who want their children to learn the real history of America, not some antagonistic, hated version of America, but the one we all learned when we were in schools. Matthew Spaulding is going to tell us what's next in that fight. But first, this commercial message. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, Matthew Spaulding, is joining us today. He is a dean at the Hillsdale College, where I have a lot of good friends, Larry Arn, the president there, and others. But also, most importantly, he's been the executive director of one of President Trump's signature um, initiatives, which was the 1776 uh, uh, Commission and the report that was recently produced to restore uh, pride in American history and and, uh, encourage patriotic learning, not just all the negatives of America. Matthew, welcome back to the show here. Good to have you on. Good to be with you. So tell us a little bit about this commission. You were the executive director. You developed this great report. Uh, There's been a lot of debate and controversy. This and the 1617 Projects is as though there are two views of America and neither one touch each other. Uh, How did this uh, commission work and what do you what do you think the lasting impact of its product is? (laughs) Well, that's a good that's a good question. There was an executive order in uh, November, which I would encourage people to go back and look, uh, creating the uh, the commission. Uh, I was asked, and I uh, took a leave of absence to be executive director. A good group of uh, individuals chosen for the commission. Dr. Arn uh, is the chairman, and the Carol Swain is vice chairman. And over the course of a month, we put together a report to address the, the, the core question that, that was asked of the commission, which is uh, to kind of give an explication of, of America's core principles and how they have shaped uh, and understood in our history. And it does that. Uh, and the main way it really does that is largely by trying to understand the principles of 1776, what the implications of those principles are, and then looking at it from the ideas of the, the founders, but also Lincoln and Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass, 
try to uh, understand those principles as they are, uh, as live principles, as a claim of truth that all men are created equal, as opposed to looking at uh, groups or uh, others uh, by various characteristics other than their equal status as human beings, which really is the root of many of our problems. Uh, a vast range of, of magnitude of those problems, but that really was the source of uh, problems, which is the denial of equality. Of course, what the American Revolution was about, but also we fought the Civil War over that, we abolished slavery. Um, and those are the things we're debating again today. So I think that the report was a very timely uh, statement of those principles. It's really uh, remarkable to think that we're in a period now. You know, when I was growing up, and certainly when my parents and my grandparents were growing up, uh, there was general consensus in education. Your teachers, your your fellow students agreed that the American experience was one of the greatest experiments in, in, in humankind. And, uh, and yet somewhere in the last 20, 25 years, there seems to have been a radical shift in the tone of educators from college all the way down now. We see it in uh, young schools that, that the American experience is really one of victimization and oppressors, right? There's, there's, there's always a black hat and a white hat and, and America isn't as good as you thought it was. And someone's a victim and someone's oppressor. And of course that really oversimplifies the American experience to say the least. Do you think that what you guys produced as a report, uh, the dialogue that it generated, that it will have any impact in changing that dynamic? Are colleges going to listen? Or are they going to dismiss this product outright and just continue on their, on their path towards indoctrination? Well, yeah, that, that's that, that, that's the problem. I, I, I fear it'll be just be uh, dismissed. I've been struck by the how much the commentary has really not addressed the the issues raised um, as as much as we, we would hope. Right? The uh, the problem I think of history on kind of both sides of the the spectrum, if you will, is to really not look at the the, the, the full record. Uh, one one side wants to see America as all bad and and uh, to be condemned, and the other side, uh, or another side is is um, you know we shouldn't look at our history. We should ignore it. We should um, kind of whitewash it. And, and we didn't want to do that. We we argue that it should be a true and accurate history in all cases. Uh, but that history should be understood in light of the principles. Because really what America is about is aspiring to those principles over the course of history, uh, as uh, Lincoln especially eloquently discussed, and, and Martin Luther King when he talked about the promissory note uh, that all are, are heir to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What, um, what is the uh, one of the fears that was raised by critics of the commission was that it was going to basically whitewash um, uh, history and just silence any criticism of uh, American you know, conduct over 240 years, and it didn't do that. It has a very accurate, you know, acknowledgement of the flaws in the American experience, but it tried to make a bigger point, right, I think, and and that is that the the overall uh, some values of America are so much better than anything that had been created in humanity when it was created in 76 and even still today. Why can't there be consensus around that? Why can't people say, well, you know, yeah, we got, we have some flaws. We had slavery. We had uh, Jim Crow. We had a lot of different things that we, we didn't do right, but we always seem to work through it because at the end of the day, our entire system values freedom and liberty. Why can't people accept that? Why, why is there a fight over that? Right. Well, I, I think part of that is, is unfortunately kind of the modern era in which we find ourselves, right? I mean, the, um, uh, you know, in, in, in a world in which, uh, we 
we we only see absolutes and uh, kind of a a imperfect, unrealistic sense of idealism. Uh, we we can't see any of the, the nuance, and of course, history is all about nuance. And and it makes no sense in in, in the modern um, mind to see how you could have a relationship between a principle and uh, an abstract truth, applicable to all men in all times, as Lincoln said of, of the Declaration, um, and practical reality, which might not be con- perfectly consistent at all times, and sometimes actually quite inconsistent. Um, that's really what what history is about, is about those inconsistencies and movements to become more consistent with the principles. And what's, what's especially good about America is the extent to which a, the movement of America is always uh, towards a, a more perfect union, a, 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 an improvement of the nation in light of those principles. Um, and so it's, we'd like to see that conversation, which is a legitimate conversation, uh, as opposed to just saying that, well, uh, there were these flaws, uh, there were these problems, there were these uh, parts of our history, such as slavery most prominently, that mean the, the, uh, the whole thing, uh, you know, is, is systemically problematic to the point of uh, we need to turn away from it as opposed to going back to those principles. And that's, you know, Martin Luther King's uh, message in the Survivement was, was precisely to go back to those principles as, as in the case with almost every major uh, movement uh, in, in American history from, from abolition, uh, women's suffrage, uh, the pro-life movement, the anti-communist movement, the civil rights movement. They've always been movements to, to solve a problem, to correct a flaw, to, to, to change something, but by going back to those core principles. And that's a source of unity for us, and we think that's what we should do today. Yeah, that's a, such a great uh, perspective, and, and and it's so drowned out often when you when you hear the academics that flood our airwaves today. I have a great experience I want to share with you. I want to get your reaction to it. So I, I went to Marquette University back in the 80s as a Jesuit school out in Milwaukee, and I was blessed to have as one of my mentors and re- multiple-time professor a guy named George Reedy. So George Reedy was a famous UPI reporter, covered Washington in the 50s and 60s. He gave me my love to want to come and do political reporting in Washington. And then he became uh, LBJ's uh, press secretary, including at the White House. And, and then later in his career, he, he became an academic. And he said, I remember this was one of the last classes I took. And he, he leaned back in his chair when the back uh, last days of class. And he said, I love education. I, I still worry about the ivory tower effect. I think you shouldn't be a lifelong academic. You got to get in the real world to be connected. But one of the concerns I'm most concerned about in academia today is that we're looking back at American history and we're applying at that time, 1980s values to what happened in 1770 and 1790 and 1840 and 1860. And you can't do that. Uh, the American experience was an evolution and, and, and trying to judge everything by today's values or a hundred years from now, someone judging today's by 2025 or 2125 values is an insane um, exercise. And I think it's going on too much. And the people around me used to call them the babbling dabblers uh, in academia. Um, do you think that that's part of what's going on here, that we're trying to judge, you know, the pilgrims and the founding fathers and, and the Abraham Lincolns by, by today's standards, when in fact you have to look at them in the context of the era that they lived? Well, there's, there's always questions about context, and, and uh, what I like to call backwards history is almost always a problem. Right? We, we nowadays 
uh, like to look back at history and find uh, justification for what we think uh, today. Um, but I, but at the claim here, the, the, the real issue, the, the issue uh, for the American founders, uh, was that there were certain things we could understand that were universally true for all time. Right. Uh, and one of those things, if not the thing, was that all men are created equal. Uh, Lincoln saw that as a permanent truth. Um, that, that's precisely why John C. Calhoun and, and the advocates of slavery had to attack that principle because it stood in their way. Yep. Uh, that's exactly why Martin Luther King appealed to that principle. So the, the question is, are there certain truths that transcend uh, history uh, such that we can appeal to them, uh, not because it's 1776 or not because it's 2021, but because those things are simply true. That, that's the claim of the founders. That's uh, the claim of, of that this nation really rests on. And I think that's what's at issue, issue today. Do, do rights come and go? Do uh, protections come and go? Or are they uh, grounded in something bigger than ourselves? And that's what we think needs to be recovered for the good of the country. When I was reading through uh, the report when it came when it came out, uh, there was something that really reminded me, and that is that it used it wasn't that long ago that equality, freedom, and prosperity were values that everybody shared, and now it seems like they get pigeonholed in the media and in academia as conservative only values. How did that happen? I mean, first, do you see that perspective? Uh, do, you, do you think that's one of the problems? And then, if so, how did it happen? Well, I, I think uh, part of it is the extent to which conservatism and liberalism have actually grown out of or become more uh, tied to philosophical grounding about uh, the status of uh, things like truth and history and relativism and, and how what we can and cannot know. I mean, at this point, there there are these pretty serious philosophical questions at the root of all this. I, I don't think that there's kind of conservative history and liberal history. <clears throat> right. I, I think this is more of a uh, larger academic question about what is the nature of history, how should it be understood, um, and and what that means for our coming to understand things like the American South. When you um, <clears throat> look out at uh, the reaction to the report, and, and um, there's even discussion today that Joe Biden's going to issue an executive order that will erase the official findings of this commission. Um, <clears throat> what is the legacy here? What What do you hope that has been achieved by all the hard work? Because a lot of people put a lot of effort into this. This was not a small project, and it was on a condensed timetable. Um, what do you hope the lasting uh, impact of this is, and what are the next steps for people who want to have this debate continue on and not be suffocated? Well, I, I think it puts a marker down uh, in that conversation, and this is a conversation that will go on, and it has to go on because of the nature of America, and but also uh, I think that at this point in our country's history, there's a, a uh, the, 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 the argument, the debate, and the discussion about what are what is our purpose and what is what do we mean. Uh, how are we a people? Are we still a people? Uh, that will continue for some time, and hopefully this will contribute to that. The um, the identity politics movement, um, what is its future? Is it going to gain more stronghold as millennials become more a part of our, our leadership in, in society, or does it get re-debated, redefined over time? Uh, do, you, do you Obviously, you, you guys spend a lot of time in one of the appendices of, on talking about its import. And, you know, the sort of the, the concept of victimology and oppression. Um, what do you think its long term future is? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that will. Well, I, I don't know. That's, that's the question, I suppose. Right. I mean, I think the only, what, all we all point out was 
that it really is kind of a claim of group rights, and that's inconsistent with the founding, the, the principles of the Declaration. Yeah. And I think that that's uh, problematic, not nowhere near as problematic or as barbaric as slavery, but it's problematic in, in, in principle nonetheless. Uh, it's it's unjust uh, to think of uh, people in groups as opposed to uh, as opposed to individuals have the same rights. Yeah, that's a, it is interesting that it's almost like a class action lawsuit. History is being divided up and in, in, in to a class action lawsuit of victims and, and those who should be sued. And it's an interesting, right. interesting moment in our history that this has become so pro- profoundly ingrained in, in the conversation. I, I, when I was growing up, we didn't have this conversation and uh, except for maybe a few um, uh, well, uh, well isolated Harvard professors, maybe, but it's become so mainstream. And when when parents ask, "What can we do?" or when when a next Republican president becomes comes into power, is there something that can be done? Is there a future where um, tying curriculum at colleges to federal aid could be a tool? I mean, were there some solutions that, if you come from a conservative perspective, like you do, or President Trump came from, to kind of write this? Uh, ship or to create some balance to it when when it feels to some people like it's uh, you know kind of floating out of control. I, I suppose that's a harder question because um, the, the federal government is rightly um, prevented from issuing curriculum or using its federal funds to shape curriculum. Right, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so uh, I think what the report wants to remind people, it reminds families that that's the place where it starts and that. K through 12 education should be have a good grounding and a proper understanding of civics and history. Um, and and you know this was an advisory report to to, to make those general points. Yep, uh, that's a great point. And when uh, somewhere I read recently, and it, I think it was just in the last few weeks, that um, enrollment in undergraduate history uh, as majors and as just uh, classes is like at an all time low. Americans just aren't interested in learning about their own history. Um, first, is that true? And two, uh, why is it? What's your diagnosis for why, you know, something that used to be core to every educa- education experience, uh, learning about the history of the world, the history of your country, why has it become so out of vogue? Um, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's true. I don't, I, I don't know that particular statistic, but I wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I think that uh, we're in a time when, when history is of uh, less, inter- less interest. And if we're teaching people that uh, past opinions aren't applicable to today, and it's quote unquote merely history, then why study it? It, it, it becomes a, uh, really meaningless uh, exercise, as opposed to looking back at history and great figures in history to try to come to understand them because they might be sources of truth uh, as we try to, you know, uh, perfect our understanding of, of things simply. So I think it goes back to this larger debate about the nature of, uh, of history itself that is kind of eating away at our educational system. When you look at the current censorship debate, the cancel culture, the censorship, uh, we talked at, really at the beginning of this, you know, equality and, and uh, freedom and prosperity are sort of those extraordinary values that got us through our good times, our bad times. And we self-correct because we stayed allegiant to those very core values of the American experience. When you look at the, the sudden crackdown in, in cancel culture, freedom of expression, whether it's in the private sector, the social giants, or even in some things that have been discussed at the government level in recent days, um, is this a continuing 
trend or is it something that's going to hit a brick wall at some point? Uh, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that one. Um, unfortunately, I think that is a, a uh, kind of a popular uh, aspect of the current debate, which is to say that, yeah, I, I think that uh, rather than studying history try to try to, as, a, as a, an attempt to discover the truth, a search for truth, uh, a the discussion about the nature of history and what happens in the record, uh, it, it really is, has become politicized in a way, which I think is not good for studying history. And it's not good for being able to have the, uh, the allowing for free speech and, and the ability to pursue that truth. So I'm disturbed by that, but I don't I don't know what's going to happen with it. I would hope that uh, things would settle settle back to being able to have uh, rational conversations about history. Yeah, that's it. Seems to be that getting to a rational and civil conversation would be a great starting point because it's been hard to have that conversation in recent years. It seems like everything is electrified and uh, everything is us and them, and there's almost no we in the American dialogue when you get you know at the political level. Um, when when I look out now and I, you know people talk to me all the time and they say, are we getting to a point where we're just going to have two separate countries that don't really talk to each other? And, and so we did a poll. Uh, I think it was last week we did this poll and a full 25% of Americans said they think it's time for America to divide into a red country and a blue country. Um, what does that sentiment tell you about the frustration in, in the, the disconnect we all are experiencing with each other? And is the us and them... Um, tension that we feel, you know, in every aspect of our lives, either a Trump or a Biden supporter, either a Republican or a, a Democrat, you're either a Yankees or a Red Sox fan. That might be a little less consequential, but, you know, the same passion. Um, is there some easing ahead? How, how do we ease that fervor and get back to a little bit of more of we in America? After 9-11, right, we were all Americans. We, we didn't like being sucker punched and we stood by each other regardless of uh, our political ideologies. It seems like in the last 20 years, we've strayed far from that. Are there some things, as you look as an academic, a historian, uh, that can be done or that have been done in the past in America to, to ease some of this division that we're, we're sensing right now? Well, I, I, the, the primary intent of the report is to point to uh, America's principles and, and history as a unifying factor. Uh, it, it has always been, it has always played that role in the past, right? In all of our crises, uh, uh, revolution, the Civil War, uh, the great movement of civil rights, and suffrage, and abolition. Uh, we've we've gone back to those principles as a source of unity, and that's still true today, despite disagreements. Despite partisan disagreements, despite pretty extensive policy disagreements, uh, we can still agree that all men are created equal and that those principles are the thing that defines our country. Uh, and uh, the report argues that we should do so, and I think that's uh, what its main objective was and the marker that's down for the conversation going forward. So I think that's unfortunately where we're at, but I think I'm hoping this report has contributed to that. So. It's interesting. I, uh, I was hanging out with um, some of my nephews and nieces in the summer, and this idea that all men are created equal is so, well, of course they are, and, and women too, and of course, yep. Yeah, uh, but at the time it was created in the American experience, it was actually, it was the exception to the rule. It was actually kind of radical, wasn't it? It was a, it was a radical idea at the moment, wasn't it? Uh, very much so. It was the first country, first nation to, to establish that as its core purpose, and uh, to then go forward, having done that and maintaining it and constantly going back to it as we expand those understandings. Uh, 
uh, and and realization of what it means to say all men are created equal. So I, I, that's a, that's a good point. So yeah, it is something that um, it seems lost on the generation that is coming up, and or maybe just graduated too. Yep. That they, yep. they, they've so. just it's come as an assumption, but it wasn't an assumption when the fathers first. Uh, uh, first uh, uh, laid, laid that the paper and made it in the, ingrained in the American experience. Well, Matthew, I want to thank you so much for all you've done. I know you do a lot thank of great you. work at Hillsdale. This is such an important commission. I know we're going to be talking about it. And as this debate over free expression in the American experience goes on, we'd love to have you back on the show. Great. Good being with you. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to all come right, back well. in a few seconds and we're going to wrap things up for the day. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we had a great interview with Matt, Matt Spaulding. I really enjoyed that. It's, you know, academics have so much passion for what they are. And I think this, the whole question of America's education system hangs in the balance, whether it's school choice to help poor and urban parents give their children a choice, not have to settle for the failed schools, the inherent racism of failure and urban schools, public schools, by giving them a choice to take some of their taxpayer money, go to private schools or better schools, uh, or instilling a patriotic agenda in America. All those things are important and they're being discussed. And uh, I think Matt Spaulding gave us a great view of that. Also, I just want to remember one more time, as we go to close, as we go to evening dinner with our friends and our family and our loved ones, please, please, please keep in mind Dr. Steve Schleyback He's a hero, a victim of the COVID pandemic, a doctor on the front lines who contracted the disease he tried to heal many others for him, a disease that he held the hand of many who passed away from. He fell prey to the pandemic this past weekend to his wife, Kim, also a doctor, to his son, James, to his daughter, Emily. He will not be forgotten. He will be remembered by just the news, by John Solomon Reports fans. We honor him in his sacrifice and we ask that god bless him in his life above all right folks that wraps it up we'll be back tomorrow with another edition